<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your show ideas and comments to podcast at totally80s.com. So today we are in for a powerful conversation indeed, because today's subject is power ballads. So I had to invite one of the greatest power singers of all time, one of the great power balladeers, the voice behind the new four CD Blu-ray collection, Still Good to Be Bad, which came out after the 80s. But of course, uh, the voice behind several of rock's most iconic power ballads of the 80s and of any decade. Please welcome to the show. I'm going to put the sir in front of his name. He's rock and roll royalty to me. <laughs> sir David Coverdale of Whitestake. Thank you for thank joining Thank you, me. darling. Thank you. for my, my pleasure. And thank you for the knighthood. Today is Totally 80s. It's all about power ballads. I'm a big power ballad fan. And yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. two of the biggest power ballads of the 80s were is this love and here i go again so we're going to talk about that at some point but before we have something i've been wanting to do this is a career high for me i have a surprise for you david oh no go ahead <laughs> i have a pet snake and he is white and he is oh right word. here he is right here i had to introduce you real? this is real this is nagel Oh, this is Eagle the Snake. How intimate is your relation? Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> We're good friends. Well, what's funny is, I mean, it's not funny. It's also I had a I had a white snake before Nagel, who passed away in 2020. And Nagel's older sister was actually named White Snake. I had a white snake, and her name was White Snake, White Snake Parker. Yeah, I think in Japan it's a good luck, isn't it? To Hakuja. I think it's good luck. So good luck to you, Lindsay, with your white snake. He's met Slash twice, but, you know. Oh, Slash is a doll. I love Slash. Yeah, and obviously has played guitar on some great power ballads like November Rain and Sweet Child of Mine. But I'm glad you're leading me because all mine are really old and uh, not necessarily. When you say power ballads, are we talking like big guitars, big drums? Because I think some of the most powerful ballads are not big guitars and big drums for me. You're reading my mind, David, because I was going to ask you as someone I consider to be an authority on the subject of power balladry. What makes a power ballad a power ballad as opposed to just a regular old, you know, ballad? Is it the guitars? Is it the power singing? A lot of the songs that I'll bring up today are people like Sebastian Bach, Axl Rose, people with, you know, Ozzy Osbourne, people with like really big voices, yourself, of course. What separates the power ballads from the the not-so-power ballad, so to speak. Well, I'm, I'm the worst person in the world to ask for comparisons. Awesome. Thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, really. But a power ballad is something that affects you powerfully, mm. not so much related to the, the lyric, the sentiment, not necessarily big power guitars. Those okay. can emphasize stuff. You know, I've got songs with Stevie Vai on Slip of the Tongue called Now You're Gone. Big guitars on there, Deeper the Love, big guitars. 
I love soul music, soul and blues music. And basically what I do is kind of use music for self-expression, but it's, it's soulful, bluesful. If you take some of the guitars and power drums of my songs, you could give them to Motown artists, you know. It's a good point. But the stuff like Stay With Me, Baby, Lorraine Ellison is just a, a heart melter. You know, those kind of songs, the Otis Redding stuff, these things are, are what inspired me to be brave enough and courageous enough to, to like push my body and my voice to the limits, you know. So pretty much everything I write, you could call a power ballad, really. Interesting. So it was very hard for me to make it like a little keyhole scenario. It's always weird for me to see iTunes putting on alternative music when it, or, or songwriter or classical or metal, you know, instead of just music. Categories suck for me. You know? Well, it's sort of one of those things like when you hear it, you know it. And yeah, yeah. The 80s and the late 70s were a really golden era for those age of music. Fun fact, yeah. one of the more recent times I went to visit London, there is a club there. It's a monthly club at uh, the Electric Volume in Camden. It is called oh, yeah. Ultimate Power. It's all power ballads. It's all like, you know, here I go again, definitely gets played. I Remember You by Skid Row, songs like that. Yeah. It was the night I arrived in London. I had no one who wanted to go with me. I practically went from the Heathrow Express straight to Camden and went to Ultimate Power by myself. And watching the people... You know, there were a lot of Hindus and stag dudes going on, like watching these drunken Brits. Hindus. Yeah, yeah. That's what they call bachelorette parties in uh, in England. Yes, yes, yes. You know, translating for our American listeners. But watching these people go absolutely ape shit, for yeah. lack of a better word, to these songs. Some And, you know, looking around, there were people of different ages, definitely probably some people who are not old enough to have danced to those songs at their prom. They love these songs. Well, that's what makes it a powerful thing, that it makes you as an individual want to express yourself in that either singing along loud to it or, you know, jumping around, which thankfully I've been seeing for over 50 years. But it that's because the music's having a profound effect on you. It's having a powerful effect on you. And certainly with my music, I can't speak for other artists, but my experience in life is certainly not unique, regardless of the fact that I've been in like successful rock music or whatever. But my experiences are all emotional and physical and mental like everybody else's. So those are the things that I write about. And blessingly, the blessings continue raining on. We have a beautiful support of women because uh, hard rock bands are notoriously a male domain. I can't sing slide it into a bunch of guys, you know, but I can certainly sing to a front row of, of ladies, as it were. But yeah, that, that's the, the difficult for me, Lindsay, is, is to pick out something that's like some of my friend Jeff Leppard had some beautiful songs when Love and Hate Collide. But if you, you look at these songs and you go, you know, somebody else could have done this. And, and it really has a hook that gets into you, not only is for melody or whatever, but for the, the emotional experience you were having at that time when that song, you know, resonated with you. It's interesting you bring up the appeal to a female fan base. Def Leppard absolutely yeah. had that. You know, they were one of the bands of that era, that kind of early to mid-80s hard rock era that had a bigger female fan base than some. And a lot of ballads do appeal to women. So it's interesting you bring that up because sometimes power ballads get a bad rap or, or really any music that appeals mm. to women gets kind of critically dismissed as not being as legit 
which I, of course, think is BS. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I'm interested in in your thoughts on that because you know White Snake has a has a lot of male fans, of course, but definitely a big female yeah. fan base. Very much so. But really, it, it's just I didn't try to consciously work on any particular image to be attractive to either party. All I was doing was music, mm. you know, writing songs. The fact that songs that I wrote, as I've always considered myself more of a 70s artist, which is interesting now being in my 70s, but more of a <laughs> 70s artist where I'd look focus on albums as opposed to hit singles. But I've had an amazing collection of hit singles too, which is pretty amazing. And that's when you make what people call a crossover. Absolutely. But that's it's it's just writing about for me. I love to to say to people, please express yourself, whether it's in music or in poetry or, you know, interpretive dance or whatever. It's really important to get these things out. Otherwise, we just build, become an emotional fucking mess, you know. So when people can, as you say, jumping around dancing, by the way, is the electric ballroom, did that used to be the music machine? I don't know. It's been the electric ballroom since at least... The late 80s. I think I played there the first London gig ever wow. with Whitesnake. And I was physically ill because I didn't know how it was going to go. And it was just people hanging from the ceiling. It was just extraordinarily unforgettable stuff. They're still there hanging from the ceiling when Here I Go Again plays over the PA. Through my social media, people will send me Here I Go Again or Is This Love that's being played at a wedding or in a bar. It comes on TV like the whole bar is singing it. These are just electrifying moments of, oh my God, I did something right. You know, <laughs> you absolutely did. Did something right that connects. You've done a lot of things right. And obviously what I think is interesting is, you know, you talked about how you had a career that dates back to before the 80s to the 70s. And it was 18th century, I believe, <laughs> yes. And uh, obviously, you know, here I go again is White Snake's biggest hit. But I think maybe some people listening to this don't realize that by the time that song became a huge hit, one of the biggest hits of 1987, it had been knocking around for a while. There yeah. was a 1982 version on Saint and Sinners. It's so interesting. The song's entirely, I wrote in uh, the majority of it in a place called Algarve in Portugal. And I'd gone there with my first wife and beautiful daughter, Jessica. And unfortunately, our relationship was just, you know, separate rooms in this villa I'd rented. So that's a whole song about the breakdown of a marriage, breakdown of a relationship. So now when I perform it, it's still extraordinarily emotional, but it's turned into this huge rock, rock anthem. Here I go again. You know, and that's fine. You take from a piece of music whatever you fucking need. You know, not what I tell you. You take what you need. Yeah, I didn't ever think of that song as being a, I mean, I guess it could be a breakup song, but, you know. It, oh, it's totally, yeah. But it feels very anthemic and very like, you know, yeah. it feels like a happy song, you know, it doesn't feel like a sad song by any means. Well, exactly. It's, uh, th that's it. I, uh, I, For instance, Is This Love? I sat down at a piano, EMI Records in London, it was Tina's label, knew I was going away to write and said, if you come up with anything for Tina Turner, we're desperately looking for songs. So I started to work on da 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 ba ba So originally, the idea was for Tina Turner. And then the Geffen guys heard it and went, fuck it, that's, you're keeping that, sir. <laughs> oh, wow. See, I always, I, I'd heard rumors or read things online that it had been initially written for Tina. Yeah. So I thought perhaps she 
passed on it, but of course she wouldn't pass on it. It's a great song. They were like, never mind. No, it was never delivered, to be honest. Uh, but I, I adored Tina Turner. She's, uh, to me, a goddess, God bless her. I've loved her since she was with her first husband, Ike. An absolute doll. I'd still love to hear her do that. But the circumstance was that this is interesting when we in the references you're going on about ballads, power ballads or whatever. The only thing I would have said without reference to power ballads was a long song I had called Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City, which became representative of what we call the White Snake Choir. But it's a blues song. And suddenly the audience took over this song, which you know, when we recorded the very first early Whitesnake stuff, there wasn't enough material to do a whole album. So we did an EP of four songs, still didn't have enough material. So I said, OK, why don't we do that Bobby Bland song uh, that we've been auditioning musicians with? And it, the crowd made that a Whitesnake iconic song, certainly in the rest of the world. But if you look at my writing through the years, I'll start off with this reflective, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so. Then I'll have this realization, oh, my God, I've got to bring the band in. So my songs have started off as ballads. And then the realization of, oh, my God, you know, I need the band in here. So when I wrote Is This Love, which was just this constant ballad, consistent ballad rather than explosive, breathtaking, electrifying guitar solo from John Sykes. But I was kind of just a bit nervous to put a ballad out. Really? Yeah, totally. And it's like huge, you know, without a doubt. I definitely want to go back to that thought, but to stay, because, you know, there can be a double-edged sword to having, as a rock band, a ballad become one of your better-known songs. But to stay on Here I Go Again for a minute, now that you've answered my Tina Turner question, it was so nice you recorded it twice. There's a 1982 version. There's a 1987 yes. version. They are different. They're both great in their own way, definitely, I guess. And I mean this in no negative way, but the 87 yeah. version is more polished or more radio friendly, more commercial, whatever. Yeah, but there was no intention of that at all. Basically, the whole focus of going into the studio is to do the best the most progressive album, you know, get to the point quicker on the lyrics, you know, or whatever. There was never a commercial approach to do that. But the circumstances, it was Geffen Records who requested the re-record. And I'm not a re-record, you know, I, I wasn't there at all. Sykes and I had enough songs. We had nine songs to fill an album at that time that the space allowed on, on records. But it was a Geffen request. And I said, well, if you're going to do that, Sykes and I and Neil Murray at the time had written a super a long instrumental piece to for Cozy Powell's drum solo. So I said, if you're going to do Hero Go Again, I want to do Crying in the Rain, which is, you know, another big song from there. But that was specifically the centerpiece, which is a, such a showcase for John Sykes on guitar, was sort of arranged to accommodate a drum solo for Cozy Powell. You know, so that was, and John did not want to do it. He did not want to do the song. Really? Didn't want to do Here I Go Again? Yeah, but because we, we had all these other cool songs. We had You're Gonna Break My Heart Again, Looking for Love, that I'm going, which I thought was one of the best ever Whitesnake songs. It just tied in everything, the epic quality, the blues, the sentimental, the power chords. And Geffen went, uh, uh, no, no. And I still think it's one of the best Whitesnake songs. So Here I Go Again, it wasn't on 
any of the records outside of the US of the 87 album. And then EMI in the rest of the world went, oh my God, we've got to put it on. <laughs> so the re-releases all featured Here I Go Again. I see. And if I'm not mistaken on that album, the self-titled album from 87, the first mm. single was Still the Night, right? Yeah, baby. Yes. Just as a quick aside, I have to say one of the coolest moments on American Idol is when Caleb Johnson covered that song. He completely- Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was so happy because, you know, maybe that wouldn't be the obvious White Snake song in the world of American Idol or The Voice. And th- didn't someone who like, didn't Paul Murkovich from The Voice like play in White Snake at one time? Yeah, yeah. Paul and I are, are still very, very close today. He's the musical director for The Voice. He's fat. He'll usually go, oh, my God. You know, his producers will say, can you get in touch with David and give us clearance to utilize this song or whatever, whatever. So, yeah, we have a super relationship. But he always kind of keeps me informed who's doing White Snake stuff. And it's always a surprise, like the style. For if, you know, I look at Hero Go Again, that's arranged for me mm-hmm. to accommodate what I do. Whereas, you know, I have versions of it by R&B singers and folk singers who've done their own version, you know, stripped down just acoustic guitars. It's it's just that kind of song that the sentiment doesn't have to be screamingly loud, Guinness Book of Records, loudest band in the world. <laughs> you know, if it's a good song, you should be able to dress it or undress it any way you want. I 100% agree. But I do think, although it's not doesn't have to be a requirement, I do think it helps to sing a power ballad in any kind of arrangement properly if you really got a great <laughs> voice, which <laughs> is why I do like it when, Songs like Here I Go Again, or I remember there was a moment on The Voice where someone did To Be With You by Mr. Big that I really enjoyed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like it when I hear a good power ballad on one of these singing shows like The Voice. Well, you're a hopeless romantic. You're a hopeless (laughs) romantic, darling. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think, you know, I was asking you what the appeal is. But, you know, these are wedding songs. These are first kiss songs. (laughs) My first kiss was to Don't Stop Believing" by Journey, one of the greatest power ballads of all time. They're wedding songs. They're prom songs. You know, they're sentimental. Don't get me started on Slide It In, because I've met so many DJs who said they lost their cherries on the, in the backseat of a car to the Slide It In album. Thank you so very much, darling. That's true romance right there. The one thing it's most important to realize, which is really confusing for me now as an artist, a creative person, to see the amount of people it takes to write songs now for, mm-hmm. for very, very successful artists. It's kind of, what's the sentiment there? Is it, is it a pure commercial aspect taking of this kind of Latin reggaeton beat or whatever? But to me, it's really strange. I love stuff that's got raw emotional elements because I can connect with them. And that's what my audience feels. I've got a voice that I'm blessed goes from a whisper to a scream. Mm-hmm. So I can go from the very intimate aspects of like the intro of uh, Slow and Easy to start screaming my aging nuts off when you get deep into the song. Ah, oh, true romance, like I said, you know. Absolutely. It's my, my middle name, darling. <laughs> I do, do want to ask about one change you made in the 87 version. I think it's the only lyrical change you made, but you changed the word hobo. Oh, the hobo. Yeah, yeah, Like yeah. a hobo. I was... The original... Okay, so this is... Oh, my... Jeff Lynn from ELO and I were mm. very, very close. I'd gone down to see him. Uh, I was living in Munich, West Germany, and there's a great studio there, Musicland Studios, that Queen worked in. Deep Purple started there, and uh, it also was notorious for Donna Summers' I Feel Love and that some of that 
disco time, but it was an amazing studio in a super city. But I'd gone down to say hello to Jeff Lynn. And he said, what are you up to? I'm, I said, I'm writing. I said, what's this? This is cool. And he gave me a Roger's Thesaurus. And it's, it was a paperback, the cheap bugger. But in it, it's, it gives you choices of words for, say, drifter. Oh, hobo. Because I'd used drifter. Drifter was the original word in, in the song. It was you know, like a drifter. I was born to walk alone. But I went, oh, my God, I've used drifter so many times. You know, so I went to this book that Jeff gave me and I looked under Drifter and there's a couple of kind of loner, sansa, sansa, hobo. Wow, that's a good word. Like a hobo, I was born and regretted it from the moment I committed it to, to vinyl. I swear to God. I was doing interviews in Finland. A guy was called Hobo. I swear his name was Hobo. And he said to me, so... David, what's a hobo? I said, it's an instrument you play in a orchestra, you know. So the only reason primarily that I was going, well, at least I can change the fucking word on this re-record and put in the original lyric and, and fuck the how many times I've done it, you know. But that was the sole purpose and I regretted it immediately. I mean, it is kind of like an antiquated term. Like when I hear the 82 version and I hear that, like occasionally rock radio will play the 82 version as it was recorded. I picture you like a stick with like a red polka dotted like handkerchief with your belongings like tied to the end. I'll tell you who else <laughs> likes the original version. Pink. Pink would open her last year's tour with the original version of Here I Go Again before she came on stage. She played the song, the actual track. Richie Blackmore's wife sent me a video. She said, you're not going to believe this, but it's incredible. One of the positive aspects of uh, social media is people being able to communicate with directly and go, you're not going to believe this, but it's the blah anniversary of duh, you know, uh, because when you get up there with the, the kind of career I've had, pretty much every week there's some anniversary or something. Pretty much, yeah. One of the things that you kind of mentioned that I wanted to ask about was, Oh, I sort of brought it up was there is like a kind of a double edged sword sometimes to a, a rock band that has very hard rock songs crossing over. That was the word you use crossing over to pop, pop radio, MTV, whatever, with a ballad that becomes their best known or biggest hit. And in some cases, not in the case of Whitesnake, but in the case of like, say, more than words by extreme really isn't representative of what they do. It's like kind of like an anomaly in their catalog. This was not the case yeah. of White Snake. And there are these rock purists, the snobs, probably the same ones who look down on the fact that you have a big female fan base or whatever, who will like say the band's gone soft or is selling out or whatever because they put out a ballad. Just come and see the band in concert. That's bullshit, you know. I remember when I was working with priests, small good friends, you know, old friends of mine, and we'd finish a show with Hero Go Again place would be going batshit and we could come off and the bat priest would be on the side of the stage going, could you leave some meat on the bone for us? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's that's that's not literally that kind of opinion has, has no consequence with me at all. It's not even like an annoying fly. It's <laughs> It's got nothing to do with who I am, what I do and what I've achieved, you know. Uh, the circumstances... I write songs and sing them. That's been my whole thing. We've just found recently demos from, I think, was I 16 or 17 or something? And I'm trying to reflect on who Janie is. 
who apparently all the love songs I could write will be for you. You know, so I've been writing love songs forever uh, without even consciously doing it. I never sit down to go, okay, I'm going to write a hit love song. You know, just shit comes on. Do you think, even if this wasn't White Snakes, I know Geffen wanted you to re record uh, Here I Go Again, mm. but maybe that wasn't a Geffen pressure. But do you, so maybe it wasn't White Snakes case, but do you think a lot of hard rock bands, particularly, I'm talking back in the 80s, you know, wanting to get on MTV yeah. or whatever, do you think they felt the pressure from management labels, even from themselves, to write that? ballad that would be the top 40 crossover hit that would be the wedding song the, oh yeah yeah the song that people get their lighters out for yeah but i, I must say that uh i remember uh, the, the first one of the deep purple managers i inherited at the beginning of, of white snake early white snake he'd come up to me he'd go what we need is a hit single and i'll go yeah okay well i just rip one off i mean for you it's easy yeah no 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 I just love melody. No, I've never, ever sat down to go, oh, right, I'm going to write a hit single. You know, it's not it's not the drive for me. I'm asking if you think your peers felt that. Without a doubt. Well, look, I worked very closely on the design of the album cover with a Canadian artist, and it was so enormous that every band, without naming names, wanted this iconic style of cover. It's not, it wasn't just the music. But I mean, also in those days, it wasn't what record companies would call going deep. Nobody really went deeper than two or three songs. And we went five songs deep. Leopard went five or six songs deep. Off Hysteria, yeah. They had like six singles or something. You're right. There used to be three and done. And usually the formula for rock and alternative rock bands. Oh, they they peaked, peaked sales or whatever. And then suddenly everybody's selling mega millions of records. It's extraordinary. I think the formula back then uh, until bands like Whitesnake and Def Leppard and, and a few other bands started to change it was you got three singles and the third one was your ballad. I would always have this image in my mind of delivering an album to the record company and then and going and then these guys sitting around a table going, what the fuck are we going to do with this? You know, did that happen to you? I have no idea, more than likely, you know, what are we going to do with this? You know, when I started Whitesnake, it was the height of punk in London. I did a tour called Back to the Roots because I thought this is embarrassing. I've just come out of one of the biggest bands in the world and I'm doing a club tour. But there were more people because uh, all the music papers were talking punk, you know. But the I, we'd go to the place where the venue and there'd be 3,000 people outside going, what the are you playing a small club for? You know, so it was a kind of a major direct clue directly from the audience that we could afford to, to go bigger. And we just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But there was no, as you said earlier, formula. All I wanted to do was music is, is creative expression for me. I studied graphic art. I was an artist from my, as a child. And at seven, six or seven years old, I heard there was a school you could go where you could learn to draw. That was it. That was it. All I wanted to be. And then the romantic realist was the artist. The realist was, I better train as an art teacher too, so I could be secure, secure income. But, you know, whenever you make plans, that's what cracked got up. There was no formula other than musicians who can express themselves with the instrument and, and have a similar focus and intent what to do. You know, all the bands I loved in the 60s were blues-based. The original Fleetwood Mac, 
trafficked Jethro Tull. And the American side was Buffalo Springfield, Moby Great, brilliant songwriters. So these were the university I learned from. Of course, the Stones, the Beatles, Yardbirds, there were hook lines. There were things that would register with me. And I put all of these things into what I call the creative blender and then mix the fucking things up and hopefully something unique comes out, you know, a unique smoothie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing that I'm just thinking of, Erin, you talk about your career trajectory and your ups and downs is one thing that for all the flash in the pan artists that there were in the 80s, there were a lot of really big career artists. You just mentioned all the career artists that inspired you in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And like, you know, when you had your biggest hits in the 80s, you had been around for a while. Here I Go Again was yeah. an established song. And a lot of the artists, you know, that we're t- going to talk about that we are talking about, like Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard, they are still on top of the world right now. Yeah, I remember Guns N' Roses going into Geffen the first time. I was in there for a meeting and I saw the guys doing a picture with some of the executives. So I met those guys right at the beginning. I was promoting Welcome to the Jungle for about a year before it was a hit. Wherever I did radio, I was going, oh, my God, I've got to play this song. Because when I hear a great rock song, like the the best rock song for me is my generation, you know, The Who, which never fails to go, oh, my God, this song. Um, It's just insane. But Welcome to the Jungles, way up there, you know, the whole thing. I became really good friends with uh, Slash and Duff and Mike Plink, the producer at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it it was cross-wires. I saw... Uh, Slash came over to see me last year at rehearsals in L.A. and goes, what's this about you retiring? You're not retiring, though. That's not true. Well, no, I was I did. What I did last year was I was supposed to do my farewell tour in 2020. That fabled fucking never to be gotten forgotten year. But I thought it was absolutely appropriate with Whitesnake to retire at 69. I thought it was absolutely (laughs) appropriate. So it really pissed me off that I, you know, I couldn't do it then. So we had a sold out world tour and then two or three years of, of, of horror, as you, as you can remember the circumstance for me, you know, going out at 70 years old was never a consideration, but Mm -hmm. I felt it absolutely appropriate to go out and thank people for uh, over 50 years. This year is my 50th anniversary of joining Deep Purple. It's the 20th anniversary of Red Beach and I working together, the 30th anniversary of Jimmy Page and I releasing Coverdale Page. It's uh, Next year is an anniversary of... uh, Slide it in, so God knows. It's always an anniversary, like you say. I ever, yeah, I'm like the anniversary kid. I'm going to get a beauty queen sash. <laughs> Didn't you name your band White Snake after my Willie? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was trying yeah. to be delicate with it, but yeah, just spit it out. Well, it actually uh, it was a song I'd started to write with Deep Purple Mark Four. So had we gone in this, I got a White Snake, Mama. You want to shake it, Mama? It was a boogie song. So when I came to do my first solo album uh, after leaving Deep Purple, I, I thought that would be a fun song to put on there. But even after that, uh, trying to think of a name for a band, because of my first White Snake album, is a song called Nighthawk Vampire Blues, which my mom would call me because I loved to take my dog walking at, you know, 11 o'clock midnight when there was no one out, you know. So she'd call me Nighthawk. I'm going, that's a pretty good name for a band. And then I went, what am I talking about? White Snake? Are you kidding? So already have the song. So 
named itself, like I said. Yeah. But yes, it's about it's, it's about me, Willie. Yeah. You know, you say you regretted having the word hobo in the original version of uh, Here I Go Again. <laughs> did you ever go, why did I name my band after my Willie? Why did I name my band White Snake? Well, yes. Well, what actually what happened was, you know, when I'd be given in the early days repeated amounts of pythons in my hand, you know, to do uh, this one famous picture of me where all my fucking curls have dropped out because this snake is wrapping itself around my arm and I had a black leather and python snake Oh, so deserved. But it was, yeah. Why didn't I call it fucking Taco Tuesday? Mm. Bags of money. (laughs) (laughs) Sacks of cash. That's what you should name it. Sacks of cash. That's a good hotel name. Yeah. Or or a stripper name. (laughs) There you go. Do you? There is a male stripper name. Sacks of cash. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Ball bags boogie. Yeah. Do you like snakes? (laughs) animal snakes are delightful uh i i don't have the opportunity to fondle mine quite as much as yours i have two kitties and i think if i had snakes that probably won't have kitties quite very long but it's an interesting uh, you know i spoke with alice about it alice loves his, his snake of course alice alice cooper met white snake the the snake my my former now departed uh-huh. um pet snake it actually ended up sort of being a almost like a Make-A-Wish Foundation type of thing because my snake died about a month after meeting Alice, but she did get to meet Alice, the king of the snakes. I've known Alice since 74. I was introduced to him as Vince. No, no, it was I was at a party, a private party, very private party with David Bowie, where I met David uh, Bowie. Ronnie Wood was there. I hadn't met Ronnie prior to that. And I can't remember, I think he was still with the faces at that time, and Alice, and we were just having a party in the Beverly Wilshire. As one does. As one does, yeah. And and it was so interesting because we'd been offered by Warner Brothers, Deep, the Deep Purple had been offered by Warner Brothers to go down and do the first big gig in South America. And Richie Blackmore said, the fuck do I want to go down? <laughs> one of those things. So Alice Cooper went instead, and Alice was telling me when they did the big opening chord, half the audience ran out because they had never heard anything like it. It was like scared the life out of them. Even he had a nice power ballad or two once in a while. I mean, <laughs> not, not not from the, this isn't an 80s song, but like Only Women Bleed is very nice. Even yeah, he yeah. has a softer side, Alice Cooper. Every rocker eventually lets it out. Well, it's it's really people wearing masks, I think, a lot of the time. It's image created and uh, whatever. But he is a lovely, lovely man. Uh, And it's interesting for me because I really find myself drawn to what I call characters, people who have stories from from a particular time, an amusing story. This was very much something I learned from John Lord, who uh, one of the founder members of Deep Purple. He was a beautiful bon vivant, would sit at tables at dinner and tell funny stories encourage me to do the same and whatever Uh, and a lot of people in the music business they don't have fucking stories yeah they're not welcome on this show i want people like you no but it's it's like it's all fucking business and that eh, that's not my bag that's not my ball bag (laughs) it's not your bag of cash it's not my bag of cash that was it sorry not my ball bags excuse me so There's so much more to discuss. I know you're a busy guy, but I have so many more questions, so much more power balladry to get into with the ultimate power singer, Sir David Coverdale. Can I please convince you to come back to continue this conversation on Totally 80s? 
Darling, nothing would please me more. Awesome. Nothing would please me more. So thanks, everybody, for listening. I'll be back for part two with David Coverdale. Make sure to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.